We, we are an intentionally simple church, focusing on the preaching of God's Word, the singing of songs, taking communion together, making disciples, doing community together, uh, doing biblical training together, but keeping things as simple as possible to keep the right things the right things and the first things the first things. Uh, that is who we are as a church. That is what we do, a church built on Jesus Christ. Uh, to that end, uh, if you need help getting connected to a community group or a Bible study, please uh, let us know and we will help you with that. Uh, we are going to be in First and Second Corinthians today, uh, so if you could sort of go to that section, uh, I will pray for us and we will go ahead and dig in. Uh, King Jesus, we do thank you for today. Uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given us uh, the, your truth, that you have uh, given us this inspired uh, text, that, that you have revealed yourself to us in your word, uh, that you have revealed yourself to us uh, through your son, Jesus Christ, uh, and you have continue to illuminate us by the power of the Holy Spirit that we can even understand uh, this wonderful, beautiful revelation of Yours. And I pray as we open up Your Word, as we look at what You've done uh, in this church 2,000 years ago, uh, we would be uh, once again renewed and refreshed in the reality of Your love and Your grace and Your mercy and the power of Your cross. Jesus, we need You. We love You. And pray these things for Your glory and for our joy in Your name, Jesus Christ. Uh, amen. Um, so we're going to start in Second Corinthians, uh, in chapter oh, pardon me, First Corinthians, in chapter thirteen. Uh, so we are working our way through the whole New Testament in a very short period of time. We're calling this series "God's Word, Our Book," and, and the hope and the aim is that as a church, that you would know this text, that you would know your way around uh, your Bible, uh, and that you would know that this isn't just something that God said, but something God is saying, uh, and He's saying it to you and to me and to us together and to His people, and He's been speaking and is speaking to us through it, and it's important for you to know, for example, when you open up First and Second Corinthians, that Paul isn't just writing a couple of lines that we sort of memorize, but that he's writing these letters to these real churches and that God spoke to them and he's speaking to us right now through this text. And so as we continue to work our way through the New Testament, we find ourselves here in Paul's wonderful, wonderful uh, First and Second Corinthians. Uh, and we are here knowing that that, that these are two different letters, but they're two letters to the same church in a sh relatively short period of time, uh, maybe 53 A.D. to like 54, 55. It's a relatively short period of time. And so you get to see how he's interacting and really pastoring this church that he actually planted. Uh, and as we approach this, uh, 1 Corinthians is really interesting because he kind of walks down what seems to be a series of questions they've asked him. Uh, we have a number of letters that we don't actually have. So I guess we don't actually have them, but we call them things. Because uh, Paul refers to them here in First and Second Corinthians. We have Corinthians A and B and C. And these are the letters. He's like, I oh, that letter thing and that thing you said and the thing, thing you did there. And as you're reading, you're like, where is it? But what did they say? We don't know. We only get his side of the story. And so First Corinthians even walks through like problem after problem after problem. And he does something. He's pointing back to the love of Christ, the love of Christ, the love of Christ. And then likewise, we see in Second Corinthians, it's really a letter about suffering, and they kind of go together. And in this letter about suffering, he keeps pointing back to love, 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 the love of Christ. And so the, so the guiding principles that we're looking at here is that when you think of First and Second Corinthians, think church, because he's talking to a church, and he's really clear on sort of how that church should be organized and love. Because the primary, and he's got really particular things to say about church, but the primary organizing principle that he has for them is that the primary organizing principle of church is love. The love of God. The love of Jesus Christ. The love of each other. 
the love of the lost. And we'll, we'll walk through kind of those three things. Uh, but we need, we need to see that so when you're reading it, you even understand sometimes he says stuff like about church discipline and things like, what is happening here? And remember, the organizing principle uh, is love. And, and for us, this is hard. Because when we say love in 2016, I think we actually probably mean something different than what Paul is saying here. Uh, likewise, when we say church, sometimes we actually mean something different. And this is not, hey, our church is better than some other church. Uh, uh, church can be church in all kinds of different places and all kinds of different sizes and all kinds of different sort of general forms. But at the end of the day, a church is a people who love Jesus and love each other and live in and by the Bible, by his word and in his gospel. And the organizing principle of that organism is the love love of God that flows out these other things. Okay, so here we are uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now, if you use this for your wedding, that is awesome. It is a great chapter to use for your wedding. It is not a wedding verse, actually. It's not wedding sections. It's great for it, but we have to remember when we hear it, even when we hear it, I mean, it's interesting. This is every non-Christian wedding I've ever been to, they read 1 Corinthians 13. They don't always say, hey, this is 1 Corinthians 13. They might not even know it's 1 Corinthians 13, but everybody reads this because it so exemplifies what love is. And the thing we need to remember as we look to the Bible and understand the organizing principle of a church is love, is that nobody loves like God loves. And that if we really want to learn to love, we need to learn to love God first and foremost. So here we are in 13 and 1. Now, 13 is in the middle of chapters about spiritual gifts. And, and, and the Corinthians are getting into their hyper-spirituality. They're, they're getting into stuff that's getting off track. And, and the context in which he's writing this chapter, you have to remember, so he's writing this letter, and as you read it, uh, he's dealing with uh, legalists who don't know how to relate to lost people. He's dealing with licentious people who are saying, no, no, what love is is you just let everybody do whatever they want, no matter what. And that, look how loving we are. And that's not love. Right? Your kid walks over to stick their finger in the light socket and you say, hey, I love him and you know, as long as he wants to do what he wants to do, let him stick his finger. No, that's not love. The loving thing is to stop the child from sticking his finger in the light socket. You know, we live in a time and a place where sort of we, we arrange our guiding principles uh, in love around, well, you, know, you can do whatever you want, I guess. That's loving. Loving is just saying do whatever you want. It's just not. It's not the Bible's conception of love. That's not God's conception of love. Um, so Paul is writing into this context where, where people are wiling out. Um, they're getting intoxicated, likely, while they're taking communion. It's looking more like pagan rituals. Uh, there are people who are being legalistic and don't want to talk to lost people because they're lost people. And there's other people in the church who want to party like lost people because they think they have freedom, and that's what's loving, and that's what's good. Uh, and, and things are going crazy. People are doing weird stuff with spiritual gifts. It's a weird church. And you just imagine Paul writing from Ephesus. You plant the church and you leave. And you hear, this is what's going on back at, not home, but the church you planted. Uh, he's got some strong words at times. Okay, so chapter 13, starting in verse 1. If I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I, am, if I have prophetic powers, no one reads that one at the wedding, by the way. Uh, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have... All faith, so to move, remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. 
Very reminiscent of the Lord Jesus Christ's Sermon on the Mount when they come to him and say, well, we prophesied in your name and we did all this stuff and, and we did cool stuff and we did things, but they didn't love Jesus. They need, we need Jesus, right? It's not about what we do, but the love of Christ. Love is patient, love is kind. Here's the wedding verse, right? Love is patient and kind. And just because it's about spiritual gifts, this is, you know, this is important for all of us. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist uh, on its own way. It is not irritable. Or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Speaking of it as a spiritual gift. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, so when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to put everything back the way it's supposed to be, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, you know, this is analogous, I think, to us right now, what he's about to say, where we are at now, here on this planet waiting for Jesus' return. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see a mirror dimly. Jesus said, Blessed are you who see and believe. For those who don't see and believe, that's about those of us who have not, we didn't get to walk around with Jesus, but we believe. We walk by faith, not by sight. I didn't get to be at the Sea of Galilee when he calmed the seas, but I've seen him calm the seas. I didn't get to see him face, I didn't get to do what Thomas did and touch, but I've seen him heal. I've seen him move. I've seen him save. I know he's real by faith. But that faith isn't loosey-goosey. It's rock solid. I've seen the sovereign God of the universe move. And he's glorious. But all of that, every experience, and, and we are, uh, and this is what's happening in the First Corinthian church. In 2016, we love experience, right? We, we love to experience stuff. And sometimes the reality is, is, is though, uh, I, I want to feel the presence of God. Yes, absolutely. I want to feel the presence of God. But God is with us. Right? We looked at Romans. Now I'm cheating getting back into Romans. But, but Romans chapter 8 is so clear. The Spirit of God dwells inside of us because we're God's people. Right? Jesus said, I have to go, so the Helper is going to come. God is with us even when we don't feel like He's with us. He's sovereign even when He doesn't look like He's sovereign. He's calming the seas and the storms even when it doesn't look like He is. But He is, and He's with us, and He loves us, and He's present. And all of this, I think, adds up to us seeing we don't see him the way we, we will see him. We don't even feel his movement the way we will see and feel his movement when he puts everything uh, back the way it's supposed to be. Now listen. For now we see a mirror dimly. But then, when the perfect comes, face to face. We are waiting for the time that we get to see Jesus face to face, faithfully. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. I'm fully known now. How he knows you now is the way you will know him then. Right? 
I mean, sometimes we get this way. Uh, we, 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 we can't come clean with our sin or we can't deal with something. Or we can't, uh, if I tell Jesus that, if I deal with that, if I repent, then people know. God already knows. And through the cross of Jesus Christ, if you're a Christian, you're already forgiven. He's already covered our sins. And so because we're covered, loved, forgiven people, we can walk in the light. That's a beautiful truth. He also knows everything He's doing to change you for His glory, to make Him more like Himself. And all the things that, that He's doing in us, He knows you more than you know yourself. And when the perfect comes, when He restores all things, we're going to know Him the way He knows us. So now faith, hope, and love abide. Right? We have this trust and this belief and this believing in Him and hope, this expectation of His movement and love remain, abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. Again, this is the organizing principle for the people of God. Now, what does this actually look like? I, I think, just from these two letters, we'll see that this organizing principle of love in a biblical sense, in the right sense here, it's about love for God, love for the church, and love for others. Go with me, uh, if you would, to 1 Corinthians. We're in 1 Corinthians uh, in chapter 1, in verse 18. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Heck of a memory verse, by the way. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. I remember when I was an expediter at a restaurant in Fremont, I had my memory verses up on my little workstation, and I was working with a buddy, and he's like, what are you working on? I'm trying to memorize the Bible. Said, okay, and we talked about this verse, and he's like, perishing? Yeah, perishing. And, and I shared the gospel with him again and again and again. I'm like, but seriously, come, come on in. Yes, perishing. Because the cross on its own, as we'll see in a second through these verses, uh, doesn't make any sense. God who has everything enters into human history and dies for people who, who don't deserve to have anyone die for, let alone the God of the universe who takes my place on the cross for my sins so I can be forgiven and live. Not just forgiven, forgiven and live. So I can have life and life in abundance because life in Christ is life in abundance. And he dies for me. While we're still sinners, as we saw last week. While I was still a sinner, he died for me. While I was completely, I hadn't cleaned my life up at all. My life was a mess. I had been for 23 years until he put that reality on me. Until I received his grace and mercy. But you know what? The cross was foolishness. It doesn't make sense that God would do this. But he is gracious and merciful and mighty. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved. Being saved? Are you using a present tense participle, Paul? Paul? Is that what you're thinking? He is, yes. Being saved. What does that mean? Right now you are being saved. You say, well, I'm a Christian. Well, yeah, absolutely. You've been saved. Paul says that too. And you will be saved. Paul's going to say that too. Paul, that is not how the English or maybe even Greek should work, right? What do you mean I've been saved, being saved, and will be saved? Yeah, I was saved. 
I was changed. I was a man made new. And for these years that I've been walking with the Lord, He has been saving me. <laughs> he's been sanctifying me. Uh, he, he's been taking away the things, my, my wiling out and my good works and, and, and dealing with just every level of me and changing me. He's saving me. He's changing you. And sometimes that change feels so slow. You keep walking the same thing again and again and again and again. And yet He's gracious. He's saving us. And He's doing it. And you will be saved, right? When the perfect comes, right? 1 Corinthians 13. And we'll know Him fully. And at that point in time, we'll say, now I'm saved. It is done. It is full. It is fully realized. It's purchased. It's done. And no one can take it away. You've been saved. Sealed. Now I'm cheating again. That's Ephesians. You're sealed with the Spirit. You're bought by a price. You belong to Jesus. Not height, nor depth, nor powers, or principalities could ever separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Boom! That's who you are right now. And in the context of that great love that He has for us through the cross, we are being saved. We usually use the word being sanctified, being transformed, and He's saving us from ourselves and our sins and our desires. And as we'll see in a second, taking off the old man and putting on the new. We're, we're changing from being the guy that we were or the gal that we were to the guy that we really will be. Right? It's, it's realized. It's, we're, we're, when we're being changed, we're, we're, the, the reality there is being realized of who you already are in Christ. This is who you are. You're a saved person. And you're like, well, I don't feel very saved today. He's saving you. And someday you won't say that anymore. You will just be saved. Um, I will destroy, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the sermon of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Now he's talking about this world. Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? When he says age, he means sort of this present reality before the perfect comes because we're people living between two worlds. We're, we're the, those who have been saved and are being saved and are participating in this future thing that's coming a little bit now. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made the foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach. Here in Seattle in 2016, a Galilean peasant preacher lived a sinless, perfect life. God incarnate, fully human, fully God, died on a cross for our sins, rose from the dead, is ruling and reigning as we speak, and is returning to restore all things. And you can become a Christian today by knowing Him, by turning from your sin and turn to Him, and He will save you, He will change you, He will give you a new life. And there are those who hear that and say, thank you, Jesus. And those who say, that is the stupidest thing I have ever heard. And those who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, we know that there's, nothing fo there's no folly in there, but it's folly to the world. What's good to God is bad to the world, and what's good to the world is bad to God. We'll keep going. Uh, God... Uh, to save the, oh yeah, there we go. God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save. It's even in the same paragraph, past tense. To save, you've been saved. To save those who believe. For Jews demand signs. Prove it. Prove it, prove it, prove it to me. Prove it to me. Prove it. And Greeks seek wisdom. Prove it to me by arguing it. 
This isn't really a Jews-Greek problem today, but I think these things are present today. Well, just show me something, and if God would do something, if God would change, if a, a shooting star would fly across the sky, then I will believe. God, do this thing. And I'm going to tell you what. Sometimes he is gracious and condescends. Sometimes he is gracious and says, because I love you, I'm going to do that thing. But you need to know that God is not a chimpanzee who does tricks for us. We don't say, God, if, if you do this, then I'll believe in you. Well, he's God, not you. Famous, famous, famous debate with, a, with an atheist who's now passed away and a really great uh, British Christian philosopher. Uh, he said, well, what do I have to do, the Christian philosophers, what, what, what would have to happen for you to believe, to become a Christian today? He'd say, Jesus would need to appear, and he'd fly through the sky and do a thing, blah, 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 and then I believe, because you know, I have proof, I've seen it. He actually looks at the guy and says, I'm glad he didn't. Well, then I'd be on your team. He said, no, no, then you'd be God and he'd be your, he didn't call him a chimpanzee, but you know what I mean? Like, that's the situation that we find ourselves in. There are those today who want science and those who seek wisdom. Argue it for me. Show it to me. I've got this objection to Christianity. It's, it's, a, it's a silver bullet. Well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. It's not. But can I, can I deal with every single philosophical problem? I can. And at the end of the day, what happens is sometimes we get the end of the argument and then the other person says, nuh-uh. And you say, nuh-uh. And at some point in time, honestly, at least in my, and maybe your evangelistic ministry is different, there have been times where I, I walk that thing down. Let's do it. Let's have the coffee. Let's spend three hours. Let's run it down. I'll give you the answer. I'll show you it in the Bible. If I don't have it, and by the way, if you don't have it, don't say you have it. Go get help. I don't have it all the time. Give me a break. I'm not a supercomputer. I'm a human being, and so are you. Fortunately, you have Google, and that is a supercomputer. Bodily resurrection. Yep, I got it. Okay, let's go. Um, or you can try it in community, and we can work on it together, which is better. Um, but at some point in time, you can run it down, you can explain it, you can show you the logic, you can set it up, you can show it in the Bible, you can show it's consistent, you can go to the thing, and then they say, but I don't like that. here to make you like it. <laughs> I'm just trying to explain it to you. Because it's folly for those who are perishing. But for those who are being saved, it's the power of God. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. If you could just give it that whole penal substitutionary atonement thing, uh, I could be in. The, the reliability of the Bible, if you give it that, maybe I'd be in. No. Uh, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. On his worst day, which he doesn't have. He doesn't have bad days. He's God. Infinitely perfect and glorious. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Uh, for consider your calling brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. What a lovely, wonderful, loving pastor. By the way, guys, none of us Myself included. Paul's going to say this about himself. I don't think he's being rude to them. I think this is just reality, right? Like, we're more, always going to be more dirty dozen than 18, which is sort of dirty dozen. But you know what I mean. And you say, what are you talking about? And I say, I stopped watching TV at about the 18, I guess. I don't know. Both classics. First three seasons of the 18 were incredible. Season four is kind of rough. Anyways, I digress. Um, but we're not the 18, right? That's not who we are. That's not how you get saved. 
You don't get saved because God needed you on the team. You know, we could really get He's not putting a football team together, right? Like, oh, man, we need something on defense. I think Andrew Pack would be great. Let's get him. No. Foolish, folly, weak, saved. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you, some of you might have been, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Have you ever thought about that? That He saved you to be a display for His love and His mercy and His glory. Not because you're awesome, because you're not awesome and He picked you to show the world how awesome He is. That is my job. I don't do this because I'm awesome. I do this because I'm not awesome and He's awesome. That's why we're here. That's why we're Christians. We become this display people of that good news and that glory for... Oh, wait, sorry. Um... God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that, that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Again, we don't show up to God to say, you're lucky to have me on the team. We show up to see him face to face, to know him face to face and glorify him forever. Our greatest reward is Jesus forever. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The organizing principle of the church is to be a people who love God with all our heart. As a people who love God with all our heart, everything we do as a community needs to run through the grid. Does this glorify the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? Is what we're doing here for His glory? Does it display to the world how awesome and wonderful and glorious He is? How much we love Him? How thankful we are for Him? Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So the love that we have for God, um, think of it both, it's, it's two ways. There's priority. God first. We love God first. That is the priority. God's, you read Mark's gospel, it's really clear. Jesus' priority is so clearly God first. People need to be healed. I need to go pray. <laughs> really? But Jesus, people need to go heal. I need to go sync up with God. That's what he does. No, what? But Jesus. And the disciples are confused. He knows that he's doing things fully God, fully human, out of the power of the Holy Spirit, and out of a, a love for the Father, there's this Trinitarian relationship. We have this priority. But you need to see that, the, that we love God first, and we love the church. What's interesting is so many of the verses we pull out of the Bible that, that we kind of apply to like social justice or, or, or to like loving neighbors and stuff, and social justice is good. And we, we go down to the, uh, uh, to the Union Gospel Mission uh, you know, every month, and we're so thankful to do that. And we're thankful to partner with uh, solid, uh, Family Works and Solid Ground and anyone we can to love our neighbors as Jesus has told us. But let us be careful in the Bible that we keep, we don't take the things that Jesus says that we should do to the church and put it on other stuff. So hear me right. Jesus said, love God and love your neighbor. That's the greatest commandment. So yes, I'm into loving my neighbor and all the wonderful things we do and in, in, in doing all of those things, right? But there's sort of a line. God 
church, neighbor. And family goes in with church. They're your first priority in that church circle, by the way. But at the same time, you need to see this is kind of uh, more like a Venn diagram. You know what a Venn diagram is? Circles, circles that go together. The more I love Jesus, the more I love the church. And the more that I love Jesus and the more that I love the church, the more I love my neighbors. And the more that I love my neighbors, I think it grows me for my love and affection for others. I think it goes together. There's a priority in how we prioritize our lives. But in so doing, the more I love Jesus, and the more that I know how loved by Jesus I am, and the more patient and kind and all those wonderful 1 Corinthians 13 things I am, and how much more, man, I was lost and messed up, and how much I want to love the lost and messed up, how much I want to love people in my name. I mean, we got people in this city who just don't think they need Jesus for anything because they're just good people. They're even nice to hang out with. They're more generous and kind than I am. But they do it for the wrong reasons. They need the love of God. And so as we kind of move into these other two, the love for the church and the love for the lost, kind of think of it that way. There's the priorities, but there's also this kind of circle where they all go together and pouring on each other, okay? First Corinthians chapter, sorry, Second Corinthians chapter 4, uh, this is Paul writing to the church about his ministry. And understand that the, everything he's about to say uh, is not him bragging on him, but him talking about how much he loves Jesus and is willing to serve Jesus and do anything for Jesus and how much he loves other Christians and is willing to do these things for other Christians. I think he becomes an example for us. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, all of your ministries are a gift from God, by the way, we do not lose heart. Lose heart. You'll hear him lose, why he should lose heart in a second. But we renounce disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. My aim is to come up here and tell you the truth of the Bible. Honestly, whether you like it or whether I like it or not. Because it's unloving for me to come and give you what I think you want or give you what I think I want to say so that you'll like me or you'll like what I say or whatever. The most loving thing we can do as Christians is actually not tamper with the word and do the best we can to say, this is what God's saying. Okay? But, but not only that, church is a community, not a business. We don't run it in worldly ways. We don't do this in worldly ways. We don't do cunning or tamper with God's word. Uh, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, here it comes back around to this idea, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Unfortunately, lost people can't see the goodness and the grace and the mercy of Jesus. And right now, uh, we have this move in Christianity where we're starting to use words like not yet Christian or uh, don't use the word lost or blind. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I'll tell you I was in the same spot you are. You're lost. You need Jesus. You're blind and you cannot see him and he will give you sight and he will make you see. If you're not a Christian, you're not a Christian. We're still thankful and glad you're here. You're welcome here. We will get coffee with you and sit with you and read the Bible with you and have you in our We'll take care of you, man. But we also love you enough to tell you we think you're also blind. But that Jesus fixes that. In their case, the God, if you're looking in your Bible, you see the little g God of this world. That's this metaphor for Satan here. Uh, 
in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan doesn't want you to love Jesus. He doesn't care. He doesn't care what goes in your way as long as something goes in your way so that you don't love Jesus. He's not sovereign, right? He's not the king of everything. Uh, he is a created creature, but he will do absolutely everything to get in your way to loving God. Whether you're a Christian or not, he's going to do everything he can. And in fact, if you're not a Christian and you're beginning to kind of walk close to that, I think it gets turned up, especially if you're a brand new baby Christian, you're considering Jesus, that stuff gets turned up. It did for me in my life. It sure did for me in my life. Uh, for what we proclaim is not ourselves. It's not the Anchor Church show. It's not the Andrew Pack show. But Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your servants. That is different than the world. What's your strategy? I'm going to talk about somebody else and then serve everybody. You should take that one back to the drawing board. That is not how you build a giant thing. Maybe that's not the aim. But Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as servants. For Jesus' sake, for his name's sake, for his glory. For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, Genesis chapter 1, has shown in our hearts the thing he did in creation and making light come out of the darkness, the thing he's done in us. What a beautiful, beautiful picture. For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has, done, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. It's fragile. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. As the world is crushing us and we are clinging to Jesus and living for His namesake and living to love Him and living to love others and living to love the lost, He is glorified. When we are just crushed and cannot breathe and everyone says, does what Job's wise, you're going to love Him in the middle of this? You're going to hold to your faith in the middle of this crisis? Yes, I am. Yes, I will, and in so doing, glorify his holy name, because I trust him. I'm walking by faith, not by sight. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. Wait a second. That does not sound like health or wealth. That doesn't sound like a lot of things. That sounds kind of painful to love other people in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our mortal flesh so that death is at work in us but life and you. He's willing to be crushed in the service of these people who've even been quite rude and horrible to him. And he's crushed in the service for the name of Jesus and for his love for them. Life Death in us, life in you. This is sacrificial, other-centered, God-first living. And I think this is the, you know, kind of example part excellence. This is the one 
of what it really looks like to love. Uh, not only that, but we love non-Christians. We love the lost. Go with me to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So we're going back. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1. Let's go down to 3. Paul's writing to them. He's heard of some nonsense, some immorality that's going on in the church. Uh, there's two things happening. There's some nonsense there's some immorality. There's some people wiling out, doing things they shouldn't be doing. And then there's the people who received one of those other letters, it seems, that I mentioned, Corinthians A or B. And when he said some things to them, as Christians, here's what we understand. As a Christian, I can hang with anybody, right? Like, I can, I can sit down and have coffee with people who do not like Jesus, Right? I can have coffee with them. I can share the gospel with them. We're not necessarily going to be tennis buddies. Uh, I'm not going to... Evangelism doesn't mean going with them into dangerous situations, doing dangerous stuff, and living the life they're living. But I can talk with anybody. The problem is, as Christians, we, we run into a place with other Christians when they're living lifestyles and lives and, ide- and proclaiming ideas that are completely uh, opposed to the gospel. And when you run around and act like their friend, you're sitting at Subway and you're eating a turkey club with them and they're eating their turkey club and you're just hanging out with buddies and people see you and say, oh, isn't that guy an honest, like, good, uh, good, you know, isn't that person a great evangelical Bible-believing Christian? And that other guy sitting with also says he's a Christian, even though he says that Jesus didn't raise from the dead. He calls himself a Christian and doesn't live a lifestyle that reflects the gospel in any way, shape, or form. Well, they're eating together. They're not saying the thing that's saying, but I'm saying that of the context of that person, right? Because they don't say things like that. People don't say things like that. And when you're sitting at the table with them, what it seems like is that you're all on the same team. And so Paul's saying, don't associate with people who are living in a way that they're claiming to be Christians, but living in an unrepentant, and I mean unrepentant, right? Last straw, unrepentant lifestyle. I'm saying you don't associate with them. They're saying they're a Christian. They're saying everything's fine with everything they're doing. You don't associate with them, Right? And there's a way that works out in the church. Now, people heard that and said, oh, so I shouldn't associate with people who are not Christians because they do sinful things all the time? And Paul's about to clear all that up. Now, what we do think of those people we're not associating with, you know where they belong? They're welcome here. They're welcome to hear the gospel. They're welcome to do life. You can, it changes your relationship with them. Your relationship and life with them becomes the priority of sharing the gospel with them and seeing them repent and love Jesus. That's the priority. That's what Paul's after. I don't think what he's entailing here is uh, like you don't ever speak to them necessarily. Does that make sense? Uh, but you don't play tennis with them. Does that make sense? You, it changes the, uh, the nature of your relationship with them. That's maybe the best way to put it. So here we go. Uh, it is actually reported, uh, pardon me, three. For, there, uh, for though absent in the body, I am present in the spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and my spirit is present uh, with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are to deliver this man to Satan. That is one of the harshest things that Paul ever, ever says. Because what he thinks the loving thing to do in this case, you got someone coming, they want to be a deacon, they want to lead a community group, uh, they want to while out, they want to do something horrible, whatever that may be. And you just kind of go with the flow because, you know, this is Seattle and it's 2016 and you don't tell kids not to stick their fingers in light sockets because, you know, they're grown-ups and they've got to just live their own life. 
His aim is restoration. Remember, the context of this is love. And so the handing over, the saying, okay, this, this, this has gone too far. And I think too far is very far, by the way. It's not just like, you know, this is, this is far. We are at uh, last option. For the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So then, then we say, okay, you're here, you're welcome. If you're in complete unrepentant sin. And this is, that's really different than, I'm in sin and I need help. Help me. My life is messed up. See the difference there? And so we say, this cup is for people who love Jesus. We cover the cup. This is our public declaration that I love Jesus. Yes, come, hear the gospel preached, but if you're living a life contrary to Jesus, you don't get to do this with us. And this is based in love. Because when the church has to actually say, it's not just somebody in the church, it's the church doing this together. The church has to look at a person and say, we love you, this is what the Bible says, and this is what you're doing, and they are different. You claim to be a Christian, and you don't think there's anything wrong with anything you're doing. In fact, I can show you in the Bible how what you're doing is wrong, but you say you don't care. There's a big difference between that. This is what the Bible says, and this is what you're doing. You're right, I need help. Help me, please. I'm, I'm messed up, and I need help. Big difference. Now, they're boasting in the fact that they have somebody who's doing some horrible, horrible things. Uh, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leaven, uh, ruins the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, so don't have malice and evil in the church, but the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in the letter not to associate with sexual moral people not at all meaning the sexual moral people of this world, or what? The greedy, I was talking about worldly people, the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters, since that would be, then, <laughs> since then you would need to go out of the world. If you want to stay away from people who don't love Jesus, who are not walking in a Christian way, you will need to go and build one of those Amazon rocket ships and go to Mars, which apparently we're doing, so when you get there, there will be other sinners there. Uh, likewise, we need to be careful here to not think that this is about my own sinless perfection. Because if we say, I've got a plan, Anchor Church, I've got a plan to keep us away from sin. We're going to go get a compound somewhere. I'm not saying this. This is, this is hyperbole. I have to say it in the middle so that when you cut it and put it on YouTube, I, it's in the middle, hyperbole. We all go get a compound out in Deming, which is a really beautiful country, by the way but no compound. Cabin we could all go to on the weekend, that might be nice, but no compound. Okay, so we go out to Deming, and we, that way we'll get away from sinners. You know what the problem with that is? We're all there! So he's not talking about Christians not sinning, and he's not talking about getting away from lost people. He's talking about people who are saying, I'm a Christian, I'm walking in open, unrepentant sin, and it's okay. It's a very rare breed, by the way. A very rare breed. That's why it's break glass in case of emergency. And it's a church matter, not one of us or, or, or like some of us, but all of us, uh, a la Matthew 18. But here's what he says, right? Don't build an Amazon rocket ship. Probably be on there with a sinner. You'll at least be there, right? 
Um, but swindlers or idolaters, since that, uh, since then, you would need to go out of the world, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother if he's guilty of sexual morality or greed or an idolater or rivaler or drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Do not go to subway with them because people will think they're a Christian. For what I have to do, what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those outside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Uh, and so what he's clear on here is, is we do two things with people who are not Christians. Okay? Uh, and we have to keep this so uh, clear uh, for us. Uh, we're very understanding and we're unstained. Everybody loves the verse in James, James chapter 1, verse 27. This is true religion, uh, uh, bearing with orphans and widows and their affliction. And we always cut it off there and say, look, we need to go take care of orphans and widows. Yes, absolutely, please, we do. We need to take care of orphans. We need to care, take care of widows. We need to take care of all kinds of people. And, and that verse is probably first and foremost thinking of orphans and widows in the church. We've got to take care of, if you're, if you're in need, you've got to let us know. I mean, my family's been in need. We're we're, we got busted out of children's last week. My, my son is done with cancer treatment. Y'all came around us in our time of need and loved us and cared for us and took care of us in so many different wonderful ways. I was in need and empty-handed. We were in need and empty-handed. And you guys came around us. That's what we're supposed to do. Now, I absolutely think we should care for orphans and widows outside the church. But first and foremost, we need to take care of here. So we need to take care of us. If you're running with us, we need to take care of you as a people. Right? That's what we do. Um, but the problem with that verse, going back to James 1, 27, is what does it say after it says the thing about the orphans and widows? And to remain unstained by the world. So as we do it, we're to remain holy. We are Christian people. We do things in a Christian way, reflecting the love of Christ in God. Right? And so that means we're understanding with people who are not Christians. We bear with them. We get coffee. You want to... You want to do the problem of evil question one more time? All right, let's do it. Number, number 11? Okay, all right. You want to deal with the ontological argument one more time because you had that philosophy class at community college or at the university level? I'll do it. Well, maybe you actually are a philosopher. Maybe you, maybe you have your PhD in philosophy and you really want to get down with the ontological argument. Let's do it. Not a Christian? We'll get another cappuccino. I'll answer the question again. No problem. Because I need to be understanding because they're lost. Likewise, and people are just wiling out. I'm not going to go wile out with them. I'll get cappuccino with you, drip coffee, Krispy Kreme, whatever, any day of the week. So we're understanding, but we're unstained. So we don't run with people in their sin, but man, I will meet you for coffee that hundred millionth time and plead with you to meet the Lord Jesus Christ. Plead with you. Um, go with me, finally, to... Uh, 2 Corinthians, uh, chapter 5, which I think in many ways sums all of this up. Uh, 2 Corinthians, chapter 5, starting in verse 11. Uh, yeah, we'll do it. No. Yeah, we'll do it. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others the awe and wonder of who God is because we walk in the awe and wonder of God because I love God. Biblical concept of fear. Yes, God is, it is a terrible thing to fall in the hands of the living God. If you had an encounter with God like Moses had, you would freak out too. 
Uh, if you're on the, on, the, uh, uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration and there's Jesus in his glory, uh, Peter says, let's make tents because he doesn't know what else to do. Ah! Right? Fear of the Lord. But also awe and wonder to behold God in his glory. It's, it's, in the Old Testament, it's a both. That, the word, the semantic range is both there. If you're in the awe and wonder of God, uh, you know, it makes the Grand Canyon uh, look like a Ferris wheel, right? You stand in front of the Grand Canyon, you go, <gasps> you, you put your feet in the Pacific Ocean and Cannon Beach, and you look out and you realize it just sort of goes and you just can't breathe because it's so big. Cracker Jacks. God is so much bigger and more glorious than that. So in our awe and wonder of who God is, we persuade others because we love God. We persuade others. But, um, but what we are knowing, what we are is known to God, and I hope is known to, also to your conscience. Uh, we are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you uh, cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast uh, an outward appearance and not about uh, what is in the heart. Because God sees the heart. For we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in a right mind, it is for you. Because God's oh, wonderful, but I'm going to be sensical here with you. Now, 14, this is the verse I wanted to get after. For the love of Christ controls us. For the love of Christ controls us. It governs every breath of my life. The, the, the love of Christ, my life gets more and more submitted to the awe and the wonder and the grace and the mercy and the sovereign glory of the God who forgave me for my sins and gave me life. And my life is lived more and more in awe and wonder of His glory and who He is. And the more I love Him, the more my life is governed by the love that I have for Christ. And I walk in the awe and the wonder of that love, the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Who you were before you met Jesus is dead. You live with the person, that's you, and you're living as a new person, as an old person. Okay? The old person, the old you, that person's a dead person, but is being taken off, is the language of Colossians. We still have, we're like, why am I still walking in this sin? Why am I still struggling? Why is this thing? We're taking that old person off and walking in the realization of the person that we actually are, okay? Because that person's dead. Why? And this is now Jesus. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, because that's the old person we're taking off, but for him who died for their sake and was raised. So I'm no longer living for me, I'm living for him. Again, the love of Christ controls me. I'm not living this life for me, I'm living for the Lord Jesus Christ. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. Before you met Jesus, maybe he's a figment of someone's imagination, maybe he's a nice... Uh, Maybe he's a prophet or a nice teacher who wears Birkenstocks or whatever you want to make up Jesus to be in your mind. And most people want to kind of get along with him, generally speaking, because you look at him in culture and how culture portrays him. Like, well, yeah, he seems like a nice guy or whatever. That's recording him to the flesh. Now, what is it to regard you according to the flesh? The person you were. 
You're not that person anymore. Or even the sins you once walked in. You are not your sins. You are not yesterday. You are not last year. You are the person Jesus Christ has saved you to be. And we're taking off the old man and walking in the person he's actually saved you to be. And it's a process. Being saved. That comes to full, revela- full realization when the perfect comes. Saved. And so as a church, we don't do that to each other. We don't treat you like last year or last decade. Or last week. Or last night. You're who you are in Christ. Be free. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. It's who you actually are. Behold, the new has come, who you now are. And this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. You've been forgiven and loved and heard the gospel to forgive and love and share the gospel. The ministry of reconciliation. We get to be bit players in God's work in saving lost humans. What a gift. What a gift. We get to be part of God's redemptive program as His church. That is, in Christ, God, who was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting the trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation, the gospel. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We put out signs on Finney every Sunday morning and say, come on in and hear the gospel. We go from here as the people of God. You go to work tomorrow. You go to school tomorrow. You go to playdates tomorrow. You go to whatever you're doing tomorrow as an ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ. Beautiful. Beautiful. Now. You do it now, by the way. Not when you... You've read your Bible all the way through or uh, whatever. You are now an ambassador. Welcome to the team. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you. And I love that he switches right to the gospel. I don't need to get off outline, but I love that he switches to a gospel call all of a sudden. We're ambassadors. Let me do some ambassadoring. Let me call you. That's not the right verb there, by the way. Uh, For our sake, uh, uh, oh, we implore you on the behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin. All our sin, not just mine, but yours, and really the world's, sufficient for all on the cross of Jesus Christ. Everything you have ever done to God or to humans got put on the cross of Jesus Christ. He drank the cup so that you did not have to. You who are sin. Me who is sin, not right English. I am who, I am a sinner. My sin was put on the cross. Your sin on the cross of Jesus Christ, completely reconciled. That's how he reconciles you, by taking what you deserved in your place. That's how he reconciles, that's how he makes us right with him, is taking what I deserve on his shoulders. Because he's a good, just, wonderful God who doesn't sweep things under the rug. Somebody's got to pay. Somebody's got to pay for my sin. Somebody's got to pay for your sin. And Jesus drinks that cup so you don't have to. This is the gospel. Not just so you're forgiven, so you live. 
So you're, you're that new creation now, right? It's not, I'm going to drink the cup now, now you be good. Behave. I'm going to drink the cup and I'm going to transform you through the resurrection. You're new. You're forgiven. You're loved. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Sin? Righteousness. It's called the Great Exchange. Penal Substitutionary Atonement. Sinner deserving the, the uh, justice for my sin. Pushes me out of the way, stands in my place. Puts me over here where he believes, belongs, righteous. Righteous. I belong over there, and so do you. I live over here because he pushed me out of the way and stood there for me. I'm going to pray. King Jesus, we thank you for today. We thank you for your grace and for your mercy. I thank you that this opportunity is open to all. All is the word you use. You are reconciling the world. All who would repent and believe, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Made new. Thank you, you've made us new. Help us, Lord, to walk in your love. Help us to love you. Help us to love each other. Help us to love this city and to love this world. Help us to give of ourselves. Help us to be so bold for your glory that we'd say, death in us, so life in you. Because we know no matter what, if we lay it all out, if we give it all, we can give it all because you've given us all in yourself. Lord Jesus, as we transition to a time of worship and a time of communion, I pray you would bless us and help us and just empower us as new uh, people, as people made new to worship you and glorify you uh, as we sing, as we take communion, but also as we go from here, that we go for your glory and for your namesake. Lord Jesus, we love you and pray these things in your name, Jesus Christ, amen.